This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. We were all disturbed to learn on Wednesday morning that 63 Canadians were among the 176 people killed on that Ukraine International Airlines flight from Tehran to Kyiv. The Boeing 737-800 aircraft had just taken off from Iran's main airport when it crashed. In the hours after the crash happened, there were various theories about what might have led to the crash, which took place hours after Iran launched ballistic missile attacks on two Iraqi bases, which house American soldiers. So we decided early on to go to an aviation expert to get a clearer picture of what likely happened. While filling in for Libby on Wednesday, hours after the crash, I was joined by Keith Mackey, aviation safety consultant with Mackey International. Well, we really don't have enough information at this point. We just have to put together the pieces that we have. And we know several things. We know that the takeoff profile seemed normal, that the aircraft uh, left the ground at the proper point, climbed at about the normal rate to about 8,000 feet. At that point, the radar track disappeared. Uh, There was no further contact with the aircraft on radar or on voice either. And the crash site was just a short distance from that point where he was last, uh, the last radar hit. So we know that it descended very rapidly, very steeply, impacted by the pictures of the wreckage, uh, very hard at a, a steep angle. And this leaves several possibilities that we can't rule out. We can't rule out the bomb. We can't rule out that it may have been shot down by mistake. And uh, the likelihood of just having an engine failure or something causing the accident probably is not true because the aircraft will fly fine on one engine, and it certainly wouldn't descend that rapidly. The problem is that the uh, data is contained in the black boxes. We have the cockpit voice recorder, which would record any conversations in the cockpit, any radio calls, any sirens, sounds that went off. And then we also have the digital flight data recorder, which gives us a tremendous amount of information on the position of all the flight controls, the power that the engine's putting out, temperatures and pressures in the various systems. These boxes have been recovered, but the Iranians are not going to allow Boeing to uh, to have them uh, in their possession. Now, Boeing isn't the only place that uh, can read these boxes. They could go to Paris, for example, uh, perhaps even to Canada. But uh, somebody knowledgeable with the proper equipment is going to have to analyze these boxes in order to help find the uh, the cause of the accident. So until we get a normal investigation underway, we're probably going to be just speculating on a lot of this information. So what what is the protocol now that it would appear the Iranians are holding on to the black box? What what sort of international agency needs to be brought in to try to get access to it? 
Well, because the crash occurred on Iranian uh, soil, they have the uh, full authority, according to International Civil Aviation Organization protocol, to conduct the investigation. Now, normally when there's an accident like this, teams are brought in. For example, Boeing would send a team, the GE and Cessna, the manufacturers of the engine, would send in a team. The uh, Ukrainians, because it was their aircraft and their crew, would send in a team. And these people would all work together using the evidence available to try to determine the cause of the crash. And this takes a a period of time. Mm -hmm. Normally, it takes at least a year to come up with an official report. Now, because of the fact that this happened in Iran, and they appear not to be interested in uh, uh, cooperating fully, we may have some additional problems in learning exactly what happened. Ukraine's president says the entire civil aviation fleet for Ukraine International Airlines would be checked for airworthiness and criminal proceedings would be opened into the disaster. Uh, Given the fact that you said that Iran has every right to keep the black box and conduct their own investigation, how would the Ukrainian government go about doing that? Well, there again, it's international politics. Uh, The procedure is for the black boxes to be examined and the information gleaned, shared among the parties that are or should be participating in the investigation. Now, if that doesn't happen, uh, we may have some issues in determining the exact cause of the accident. Keith Mackey, aviation safety consultant with Mackey International. We found out the next day from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau that evidence and information shows it was an Iranian surface-to-air missile that shot down the plane, maybe unintentionally. Members of the Canadian Transportation Safety Board have been invited to attend the crash site to take part in the investigation. It could be some time before we know conclusively what happened. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. As long as I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. The words of Donald Trump on Wednesday in his official reaction to the ballistic missile strikes by Iran on Iraqi bases on Tuesday, bases which house American troops. Trump confirmed there were no Iraqi or American casualties in the attacks, which were in response to the U.S. killing of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani last week outside of the Baghdad airport. Joining me to discuss the developments to that point, Shuvaloy Majumder, Monk Senior Fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute, and Stephen Sademan, International Affairs, Canadian Defense and Security Network expert at Carleton University. I first asked Professor Sademan if he thought the retaliation by Iran was meant to be as ineffective as it was. Anytime you do a uh, missile firing like this, it sends signals, but since we don't have people inside Tehran that can tell us clearly what they were intending on doing, we can't really say for certain what their intentions are. But from what we've seen, uh, this does suggest to be sort of a tit-for-tat response where they did did something to prove that they would respond, but it's not over yet. They could continue to do other things. They could have their proxies do other things. There could be cyber attacks in the future. Uh, This could be the end of this stage of it, but we won't know until we're a little further distance from it. What did you think about Donald Trump's reaction in the last hour? 
Uh, I think it, it's uh, an unexpectedly reasonable reaction from Donald Trump, um, but it suggests a larger question, which is why go to through all, through all this effort, uh, because it's not really changing things much on the ground. Uh, but uh, I think his response thus far, you know, today, that one speech was fairly measured. But it raises larger questions because why are we here in the first place? The United States had to deal with the uh, uh, Iranians along with uh, several other countries that the Iranians would not push their weapon systems further and, and, and would slow things down. And he didn't find that to be good enough. And yet we're now back in a situation where they're, the, the Iranians have said they're not going to be held by the deal anymore. So there's been a lot of store, you know, a lot of stirring the pot without any real progress. So we can be relieved that at, at this moment that things are going further, but uh, we have to ask ourselves, was it all worth it? Stephen, we'll bring on our other guest now, uh, Shuvaloy Majumder, Monk Senior Fellow with the McDonald-Laurier Institute. Uh, could we get your reaction? I don't know how much you heard of Stephen Sademan's reaction there uh, about the retaliation by Iran and how ineffective it was and what may have been behind that. No, I agree with Professor Sademan in the sense that it was a fairly ineffective retaliation, but I would argue it is imminently predictable. Uh, the Iranians are in no capacity to wage a war with the United States, and their response was never going to be in the context of world wars. It would be in the context of asymmetric warfare beyond the kinetic action of deploying missiles and troops. They will, I think, now mark the next phase of their response through uh, a lot more clandestine activities trying to subvert American power, more likely across the region than globally. But I don't think this chapter of their response has quite concluded. Uh, the Supreme Leader has threatened that more is to come uh, in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, and so I think that's something we should all be attuned to watching carefully. I don't think Iran's fact pattern is one in which they seek to be a stable partner in the region, a good neighbor to uh, the countries that they are bordering. Uh, I don't think that's the interest of the regime. The regime has pursued an explicit policy of escalation and hegemony and control over uh, their region. They've sought to destabilize uh, efforts toward uh, trying to find ways to establish a longer-term peace. They occupy countries with an almost imperial and chauvinist mindset. Uh, and I think that that is going to continue to be exactly what the Supreme Leader will aim to accomplish. Well, what's changed, I think, is that whereas President Trump and his administration had been reluctant to take me significant measures in response to sophisticated Iranian attacks across the region, whether it's missiles or uh, targeted bombings or tactical disruptions by instigating rebellions locally. Uh, what, what I think has changed is that the Iranians now see that there will be costs to their intransigence. And I think that's actually a very reasonable thing to do when you're trying to confront a bully. It's important for the bully to understand that there, there, there will be costs to being uh, overly ambitious about what they're trying to accomplish. Stephen Sademan, your final thoughts? Uh, I guess I have to say that uh, I'm really worried about uh, the foreign policy in the United States these days, that Donald Trump operates from his gut. There's no systematic doctrine or grand strategy involved. Uh, and he has a very, very weak uh, foreign policy team. Pompeo is a hawk. And so I'm really worried about the next time, because there's going to be a next time. This is not the end of it. And he is poorly prepared to handle any of these situations.
Stephen Sademan, International Affairs, Canadian Defense and Security Network expert at Carleton University, and Shuvaloy Majumder, Monk Senior Fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. It's early days in the race, but who do you feel is the best candidate to succeed Andrew Scheer as leader of the Federal Conservative Party? Conservative strategist Jason Leader joined me on Wednesday, and I asked him what he makes of the latest Leger poll, which reveals 29% of decided conservative voters don't know who they would choose to head their party. You know, I've been involved in conservative politics for a long time, and I don't know who yet I'm going to choose. You know, it's uh, I actually want to watch a little bit of the race. I find they're they're pretty edifying. You know, you watch it and you see how people perform and handle the pressure. And the tough days are the ones you got to watch, right? You got to watch how people handle the adversity because it's not always going to be as fun as, as it is on day one. So I'm not surprised, to be honest. And I think you've got a bunch of people who are big names in political circles, but relatively unknown out there amongst the Canadian general public. So, you know, you get, these people are going to have to crank up the name recognition. That's one of the things that a leadership race does. Interestingly, the two leading candidates that came out of the Leger poll are former Prime Minister Stephen Harper and former interim Conservative leader Ron Ambrose. <clears throat> yeah, two things there. I think one... Harper's obviously really still uh, popular with the party, and uh, he's actually, it's funny, he's that now that, you know, the further you get from politicians like Mr. Mulroney, Mr. Kretschmer, Mr. Harper, you know, their last years, everyone's sort of tired of them, but, uh, you know, you look back on it, you know, a little bit more fondly, and certainly within the party, Harper's a, a, a strong figure and, and beloved. Uh, Rana, I think if she steps into this race, and I think there's a chance she will, She's going to be the odds-on favorite, or certainly one of the one of the people who you know you're, you're best well known. I think a lot of people in the party are looking for possibly some female leadership to change the channel a bit and change the 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 the, the brand of the party a little bit. So I think Ron is going to be a great candidate if she uh, if she indeed runs. But it wasn't surprising to see those two names. Do you think she is intrigued by the idea of coming back after being out of the fold for a couple of years? Yeah, I think. It's funny. Politicians, you know, uh, it doesn't matter what the stripe is. They're all intrigued by uh, power and uh, and access to it and, uh, you know, and leadership. Right. So here's the thing about this particular leadership race is um, the last time you didn't you didn't attract the A talent because people thought that probably Trudeau had a decade worth of uh, wins in him before anybody was going to be able to touch him. And so this time it looks like, you know, you got 18 to 24 to 36 months of being the opposition leader. And then you got a, you got a chance at being prime minister and it's probably, that's it. You know, you're probably not sticking around another time. It's sort of one and done. So it's not this like 10 year, uh, you know, odyssey through church basements of being the opposition leader uh, before you get a real chance at being the PM. So I think that's what's attracting people like Rana and, and, and some of the A team here. There are two declared candidates, Pierre Poliev and Aaron O'Toole. They are officially in the race to succeed Andrew Scheer. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts about both of them? They, they, smart smart things for both of them. Uh, number one, um, they both have a bit of a head start. Number one, Aaron, because he ran last time and ran a respectable third place, a very respectable third place, and he's going to be able to build on that a little bit. Number two, um, Mr. Poliev is just a really hard worker. And the other thing that about Mr. Poliev is, if you look at his positioning, he's positioning himself, I would say, a little bit right, or he's positioned a little right of many of the candidates there. That pretty moderate, uh, generally, uh, you know, in our party, but I would say right of, of some of the candidates that are whose names are being bandied about. So 
there's a lot of people in our party who are interested in that kind of a candidate. So Mr. Poliev is going to be the surprise for a lot of outsiders. They're not going to have heard his name before, and he's going to do very, very well in this campaign. I've predicted sort of a strong second place or possibly uh, possibly shocking people with a win. And I think Mr. O'Toole, you know, he's, he's one of the things these two guys got started in December when other people were just sort of considering it. And that's a big advantage because, you know, in a six-month campaign, if you waste 20% of it, uh, you know, you've lost the time, right? Almost every time this conversation comes up, uh, and there have been a lot of dinner uh, time conversations over the last couple of weeks with Christmas and New Year's and family gatherings and so on, everybody always asks, what about Peter McKay? Yeah, Yeah. he's he's always always in the mix, isn't he? Yes. I, I, I've got a feeling. I'm not sure that Peter's going to run. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure that he's going to run. I think uh, he got out there pretty far during the during the campaign. I, I, I like Peter. I think his bilingualism is good. I think his reputation is 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 reasonably strong out there. And I think he he looks like a leader um, to people. I'm just not sure he's going to run. So I think he'd be a welcome addition to the race. It's nice to have, like I said, you know five, six, seven really credible candidates out there. And he, and he, and there's the, the old PC part of this party, you know, Mr. Charest and Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, and Mr. McKay will, will certainly get a lot of support there, but I'm just not sure he's going to run. So Cons- we'll see. Conservative strategist, Jason leader on the early days of the federal conservative leadership race. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer radio's best of fight back. It was a global headline attention grabber. The announcement this week that Prince Harry and Duchess Meghan plan to step back from their senior roles in Britain's royal family with a goal to become more financially independent and spend more time in North America. A statement on behalf of Queen Elizabeth was released soon after, which says, quote, we understand their desire to take a different approach, but these are complicated issues that will take time to work through. If you read Zoomer magazine and go online to everythingzoomer.com, you will regularly see articles about the royals. So we thought we would go to Suzanne Boyd, publisher and editor-in-chief of Zoomer magazine and everythingzoomer.com, to ask about her personal reaction to Harry and Meghan's announcement. It was good for them. And good for Canada. I mean, they were just here. Um, their return to royal duties um, just seems so long ago, but only two days ago, by going to Canada House in London and thanking Canada for all the warmth they received in their six weeks hiatus. They looked amazing, really refreshed and happy. And then they made this announcement saying they will spend half their time in North America and Canada's in North America. So I think it's really good and good for them too, just as people and as a couple and for what they say they want to do with their platform. And why do you say good for them? Because this does uh, chink the armor a little bit on the royal family. Well, I think it's good for them because I think they've been in an untenable position um, since they got married. It was everyone loved the story. A wonderful self-made woman who had worked in philanthropy fell in love with our dashing Prince Harry who wanted to change the world. And then the tabloids and, you know, just went in for her and she's been targeted and they spoke out just before um, Christmas in that documentary from South, their South Africa tour where they said it's been tough and very hard and they took a step back. And for Harry, I think, you know, Prince Charles has for a couple of years now been streamlining the monarchy and it's all been about the Cambridge line of succession. And we've seen in the last couple of months pictures of the Queen, Prince Charles, yes. William and Prince George. And that's how it should be. And in 20, 2017, Prince Harry said, you know, it's going to be all about William's children. I have to find my way in the royal family. So they are a very unique couple. 
Um, they are committed to the Commonwealth, which is global, and I think they want to use the platform in a different way to modernize how they approach the institution. And I think it's complicated, but I think it's also a good thing. So I guess maybe in order to move forward, we need to look back a little bit in terms of the kind of money that they receive now and what's expected of them for this money. So basically, that's where the complication comes in. And I think, again, it's damned if they do, damned if they don't. Because a lot of you, when you read the the, the comments, which I try not to do, um, because some of them are quite harsh, it's all about, well, you know, we pay their way. We refurbished Frogmore Cottage where they live. We paid for the wedding. We, but that wedding brought in $1.6 billion worth of tourism dollars. So so they're saying, and but they've been criticized for, you know, going on vacation on private jets and all this sort of stuff. And I think they're saying, if we earn our own money, then we won't be criticized the same way. Mm -hmm. So there are many royals who support the queen who work, like Princess Beatrice and Princess Eugenie, but they're not senior working royals. So they're saying we can be royal and support our patronages, support the queen, including our commonwealth duties, but at the same time, make a living the way other royals do. And that's become sort of the crux of the matter. When you read their Instagram announcement, it is nowhere near what the British media ended up doing with the news. Exactly. They made it their own news. Well, this is it, and that's part of the problem. And I think part of the problem is when quite emotional Harry, you know, Prince Harry has said he blames the tabloids for what his mother went through and how she died. And, you know, in the, again, in that document in South Africa, when they announced the lawsuit of the, of the Mail on Sunday, it was about how the tabloids have really pursued Megan and made life difficult for her. And so this proves their point. It, it, they didn't say they quit. The tabloids have said they quit. Right. Do and we even know if the queen is furious? Well, exactly. The tabloid knows has the queen told anyone she's furious? We don't know that. So I see why this proves their point. Well, in even some of the more reputable organizations mm-hmm. like the Associated Press mm-hmm. uh, were reporting this morning that the queen was blindsided. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly doesn't look like she was blindsided. Well, I think that you see that's where it gets into like the quibbling and the splitting of hairs because on the Sussex Royal announcement yesterday, it's the last line said we were working with the Duke of Cambridge, Prince William. Um, Prince of Wales, Prince Charles and the Queen and all relevant parties. And, you know, so that made it seem they knew about the announcement. The British press, reputable ones, are saying they had 10 minutes for the before the announcement and the Queen had forbade them from making the announcement. We don't know if that's true. Right. I think we have to take the Buckingham Palace statement as it is, which is a bit terse. So, I mean, you take that for what it is, but the news is now out and we'll have to see how this rolls out. It's a 21st century monarchy. I mean, every new person who has come in has been, has changed it. Prince, when Prince Philip came in, the queen moved to Malta for four years after she was married to him before she took the throne and she was living the life of a naval wife and he was considered a bit unsuitable because he was a penniless prince. You know, when Diana came in, she changed things and was much more open. So every generation generation of the monarchy has had a member that has changed it. And the change, I think, has only made it stronger because it's made it more part of the times. Suzanne Boyd, publisher and editor-in-chief of Zoomer magazine and everythingzoomer.com. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Linda in Burlington phoned with her thoughts on Harry and Meghan's plans to step back as senior royals. I think it's great what they're doing. And 
that the press needs to back off. I think that they, they should be accepting it. It's about time that the, some of the, the royals started to take on a life outside of the family. And I think it's great that they want to try and make their own income. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Lorraine in Peterborough, who laid out what she sees as the priorities for Canada's next Conservative leader. When it comes to a candidate, it needs to be someone who can identify with Canadian voters, and Canadian voters can identify with that person. It needs to be someone who can put forth policies that can be met and the promise kept. For example, we need a national senior strategy. We're going to have a lot of seniors by the year 2035, and they tend to be the largest chunk of voters. And I don't see anything on the horizon in any of the parties in going in this direction. We also have the uh, national pharmacare issue. We have Medicare, but we don't have the pharmacare to to do it. So we need a leader who can push forward policies that will resonate with Canadians. And until the Conservatives can do that, they're going to have some stiff opposition from the other parties. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. If you have a comment, you can email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.